scripture reading for today is Mark 15, verses 21 to 47. And they compelled our passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were, also other, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Madeline and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of jo- Joses and Salmon. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him on a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw that he was laid. Amen. There are three drinks 
offered to Jesus while he hung on the cross. Two of them tell us about the nature of human beings. One of them tells us about the nature of God. The first drink Jesus is offered, verse 23, is drugged wine. It's wine mixed with myrrh. It was a primitive painkiller, something that was supposed to have a mild numbing effect, like a slight narcotic, something to dull the pain, something that, on the surface of it, seems humane. But think about the context. By this time, Jesus has already been scourged. He's been flogged with a whip designed to shred his skin and muscles. He's then mercilessly mocked by the soldiers, dressed in a royal robe with a thorn crown mashed into his head. Looks like a parody of a king that they then bowed down to and then hit over the head with a stick, punched him in the face. And they did this not for any punitive value, but simply because they had some extra time to while away before they got on with executing him. He's been so severely wounded by this time, is so exhausted already that then when they load the crossbeam onto his shoulders, something that would weigh between 30 and 40 pounds, he can't carry it for long. They have to force someone else to do it. They get him to Golgotha, strip him naked. They're about to crucify him. Spikes are going to be driven through his wrists. His feet crossed over so that another spike drives through both arches. All of his body weight is going to hang on these three points. Crushing nerves, ripping flesh, while at the same time compressing his lungs so that he can't even breathe. Unless he pushes and pulls against the spikes, it will be agony to take each breath. But then his muscles are going to start to cramp, violently twist and contort his body. There's going to be nothing that he can do to relieve the cramping. He's pinned there, helplessly immobile. The sack around his heart's going to start to fill with fluid, painfully compressing the heart the longer this goes on, until he eventually suffocates, because he doesn't have the energy to pull himself up one more time for one more breath. That literally could take days to occur. All the time he's fully exposed. Exposed to the elements, exposed to wild birds and beasts who may not wait for him to die before attacking him, exposed to the mockery, the contempt of anyone who passes by. New Testament scholar Leon Morris summarizes crucifixion by saying that it was a ghastly form of death, excruciatingly painful, prolonged, and socially degrading. That's what Jesus is facing when they come to him with a little drugged wine and they ask, oh, would you like a little something? You know, take the edge off, make this a little easier. Who is that for? For him? For what? Is it out of some kind of latent humanitarian impulse? Roman soldiers all had swords. If they felt he had to die, that he was a dangerous insurgent, there were far quicker ways to make that happen than this. Ways that were far less gruesome, less horrifying. They have already whipped and beaten and mocked him. They don't care. 
how much pain and degradation they inflict. They are fully set on doing something that is even more humane. That drink is not really for him. It's hypocrisy. It's a pretense at being humane at the very moment that they are committed to carrying out an atrocious barbarity. It's something that lets them say, yeah, we did all that to him. To a fellow human being, someone made in the image of God, someone who is exactly like us. We did all that. But, you know, we made it a little easier on him. It lets them exonerate themselves. Make it seem like it's really okay when not a bit of this is. It lets them justify what is unjustifiable. That's the first drink. I'm going to skip the second for a moment. We'll go on to the third. This third drink happens after Jesus has been hanging on the cross for six hours. He's cried out to God in verse 34. Some people mistakenly interpret this, verse 35, as him crying out to Elijah to come save him. And so, verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait! Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, sour wine is not wine that turned bad. According to the Greek lexicon, it was a cheap favorite beverage of poorer people, relatively effective in quenching thirst. The ancient writer Suetonius noted that it was something that on-duty soldiers had on hand to act as a stimulant. And so they offer this thirst-quenching stimulant to Jesus to make sure he stays conscious. To what end? So that they can see whether Elijah will come to help him as he calls out? Wouldn't that be something to see? Or at least, since they think he's calling for help, they can keep watching him, hearing him, as he cries out over and over for help. Help that not a single one of them believe is coming. It's so that he can be an amusement for them, an attraction. It's something for their entertainment. This time the drink is not for absolution. It's to prolong his agony so that the spectacle doesn't end too early for them. It's so that he continues, so that they can be amused by his pain and suffering. This cruelty to a fellow human being is what flows in humanity's veins. It's what's coded into our DNA, in all of us. Mark is showing us things here that are not unique to a time and a place. Things that we can say, oh, well, you know, that that was comfortably in the past, part of the pre-modern world, something that has nothing to do with us. There's a hard line between us and them. We, we're civilized. Well, where do you think we came from? Don't you realize that we are the descendants of a pre-modern world? That we are birthed from the same genetic code that made them up? That humanity is this long, continuous string that crosses all the various lines of civilization. The genetic code does not change merely because of the time or the place that it's born into. The same people who in that context could use their God-given intelligence to create ways for human beings to suffer horribly, so horribly that you really can't stand to read about it, while they enjoyed it, 
and absolve themselves of guilt, they were born of the same genetic material that you and I are. The same genetic material that produces today people who look for other ways to express those same exact cruel desires. Look around you in our world. It's really not hard to find these expressions. Are the MMA, the mixed martial arts, the cage matches, are they so very different? Do they express a more advanced society, one that's more civilized, as we intentionally regulate and promote duels, where the goal is to incapacitate an opponent as quickly as possible by violently overpowering them, regardless of what shorter long-term damage results? Are we any different while people watch, while we pay to watch, to be entertained? Are we any different while we justify ourselves and say, well, nobody forces the fighters to do that. They know the risks. They're well paid to take them. Is that so very different? Does it come from a completely different genetic makeup? Or is it a modern expression of the same inhumanity of man that you see 2,000 years ago? Or if that's not something that's ever been tempting to you, think about the movies. Ever watch a revenge movie? One involving a mercenary, a mercenary team, an assassin. One where the goal is to see how high the body count goes. Ever watched one with friends? Counted human beings? made in the image of God who didn't make it to the end of the movie? I have to confess I've done that because it was entertaining. Or consider the whole genre of so-called splatter and slasher films. Their popularity built throughout the 1900s, gained speed during the last half of the century until they went mainstream in the early 2000s in our very modern, civilized world. This genre produced a body of films that critics have dubbed torture porn. It's a phrase I first heard in connection with the extremely popular TV show 24, featuring Kiefer Sutherland. Films and shows that depict realistic, violent mutilation and destruction of the human body. Films and shows that realistically depict the pain that goes along with it. Depictions that offer mutilation as an art form, an art form that turns out to be incredibly lucrative as people pay millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to be entertained by watching an image of God have that image utterly destroyed, ruined. Or if, again, those are not things you typically watch, please realize this is everywhere. It's in collections of home videos that people pull together for the for you to watch online or on TV. People walking into walls, skateboard and bicycle fails, falling off of roofs. Videos and collected and shown with commercial breaks for your entertainment. Or please realize that it's seeded into popular storylines. It was somewhere in the middle of the second season of The Mandalorian that I realized something. I realized that each episode of The Mandalorian meant that he had to kill or otherwise incapacitate those who opposed him in his quest to return Baby Yoda to his own kind. 
and the violence was embedded into the storyline so much that I knew it was coming, episode to episode to episode. And I watched anyway. Because, hey, it was justified, right? He's saving the foundling. The end justifies the means. And therefore, not only is he exonerated on screen, so am I for watching. And if that's not justification enough, I can always tell myself, it's okay, it isn't real. It's just a fantasy escape. With this kind of moral ambiguity in our entertainment, is it any wonder that we don't know how to process actual violence when it occurs? That we have national debates with wildly divergent viewpoints on how we should think about riots that break out in our city streets, that break out in our capital, that break out in an award ceremony. This is in us, all of us. And yet it's not the way that we were made to be. That's why when we hear of it, we recoil from it. We know this is evil. We know that when we engage in it, we are participating in something evil. What is evil trying to do? Its number one goal on this earth is to remove the image of God from God's world. To eliminate as many people as possible. And when it's not possible to eliminate them, then evil settles for second best. It damages, distorts people, maims them, disfigures them, degrades them, so that they no longer resemble the God in whose image they were made. Forget that. Forget evil's goal. And you will not understand the breadth of what is happening in this world. It'll just look chaotic to you. But even worse, forget evil's goal. And you may even find yourself colluding with it in its goal. Enjoying what it's doing. And telling yourself all the time, it's okay to enjoy Evil is at work at the cross, twisting and distorting Jesus' humanity so that he looks less and less human through all the suffering that he's undergoing. It is set on removing him and his influence from this world, set on taking away the very best representation of God that the world has ever seen. And yet, Jesus is not at evil's mercy. He has created everything including those who give themselves to evil. He didn't create them for that purpose, but they are created beings. Which means what? It means that he is stronger than they are. That means they're not keeping him there. He's keeping himself there. You think, why? What, what is he doing? He's drinking down the second cup. The one that we skipped over. You don't see this cup handed to him because this one isn't offered by any human. It comes instead from God himself. It's the one that Jesus talked to his disciples about back in chapter 10 of Mark. The one that he was absolutely determined to drink. It's the cup of God's wrath that we hear about in the Old Testament. God's wrath against any and every human sin. Against every time that you and I have turned from him and we've turned to evil. Jesus is drinking that cup. 
And you know that he's doing that. Because even though you can't see the wrath, you can see that it's present. And you can see that it's present because you can't see it all. You can't see because of the darkness, verse 33, that covered the whole land until the ninth hour. Roughly from 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness covered the land. It's a darkness that was supernatural. Darkness that could not have come from an eclipse. The placement of the moon at the time of month would not allow for an eclipse. This was not a natural darkness. This was one that reminded you of the plague of darkness that God sent on Egypt. A darkness that could be felt. A darkness that was so dark no one could even move for as long as it lasted. It was a darkness in Egypt that signaled God's judgment. And it was a darkness that Old Testament prophets said would come again. That it would come when the Lord came to judge humanity. Zephaniah chapter 1 tells us, The great day of the Lord is near. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day when God will bring distress on mankind, so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. That prophesied darkness is here at the cross, which means that God's cup of wrath is here, being poured out. We're watching God's judgment against sin and evil. But who's on the receiving end? Of this wrath. Who's this wrath being poured out onto? Who's drinking the cup? Jesus speaks up, verse 34. He cries with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who has God come to judge? Who's he come to give them what they deserve? To turn from them because they have turned from him. It's Jesus. Only Jesus cries out, feeling that abandonment. But only Jesus has lived a perfectly sinless life. That means he's not being judged for his own sins. He doesn't have any. He's being judged by God for sin but not his own. This is why he had to be baptized in his ministry. He had to identify completely with his people to bind himself to us so that what belongs to us, our guilt before God, could rightly belong to him. It was so that he could be responsible for the sins of anyone who would believe that he would actually take them for us. And here's come God, now judging those sins that Jesus is bearing on the cross. Judging all the things that I have done, including the ones that I have justified and told myself it really was okay. You can see something really clearly in the darkness. What's it help you see? It helps you realize just how good 
you're not. It helps you realize there's really no difference between you and someone who offered Jesus drugged wine, sour wine. The darkness tells you how deep your need is. That while you might not have done exactly the same thing that they did, you've turned away from the Lord in your own ways. You've turned to evil in your own ways. You've joined its agenda and you've hated people in your own ways. And the glory of this passage is that despite everything that you have ever done, Jesus stayed there on the cross until he finished drinking the cup the Father gave him. He didn't stop absorbing all that judgment until there was nothing left of it. How do you know that? You know that because he chose when to die. He gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's really easy to skip over that way too quickly. He uttered a loud cry. He had plenty of life left in him. He could still cry loudly. The cross had not broken him. He was not exhausted. That's what gets the centurion's attention. Verse 39, he saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last and he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus did not die in the same way that anyone else did. Didn't die the way everyone else did, and the centurion knew it. He knew this was no ordinary man. Jesus chose when to breathe his last. And when he did, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Tells you that the temple is no longer the way to come and meet with God. That something happened there on the cross that replaces what used to happen in the temple. Forgiveness of sins no longer happens in a building. No longer happens with animal sacrifices. That what Jesus did replaces all of that. Now take all of that and put it together. Jesus, the Son of God, breathed his last when he wanted to. At the ninth hour, when darkness was finished being dark. At that time, the temple became obsolete. What does that mean? He finished the cup. For you. He extinguished the wrath of God against you, absorbed it all. There is not one thing that his people have done or will do that will put them, that will put you ever in danger of entering the darkness. That's the power of God at work for you, on your behalf. Saving anyone who believes that he would do that for them. That's the power of God, it's the love of God for you. Doing what you never could so that you can be with him. So that you can be rescued from evil, so that you can be like him. 
The darkness tells you that you are far worse than you think you are. That you are as bad as anyone who lived 2,000 years ago. But the cross tells you that you are far more loved than you've dared yet to believe. Believe. Believe even if you've already believed. Believe more. Believe deeper. And be loved. Be loved tonight. It's like you've never been loved before. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You're the king that we come and we bow to. Lord, you came to serve us. To serve us in ways that we could never earn, that we did not deserve. Lord, you did that purely out of your compassion, your mercy. We don't have a better word than to say that you have loved us. Lord, fill us with an awareness of what you've saved us from. Fill us with a deeper awareness of why you saved us. And Lord, set us free tonight to share that love with each other, to share that love with you as we respond to you now in song. In Jesus' name, amen.